From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. We will not be taking your phone calls today. Father John Tregilio would rather fraternize with his faculty members, co-faculty members, his confreres at Mount St. Mary's yeah. Seminary than he mm-hmm. would be with us live. So we're going to record this ahead of time. So we have some fresh new content. Uh, fresh. Fresh, fresh, fresh new content. Um, As I drink my Italian mineral water. <laughs> there you go. Uh, uh, bubbles or no bubbles? Sends a gas. Ah, okay, very good. I don't like I don't like the bubbles either. Um, so, <laughs> as we stroll down the Via della something in in beautiful Rome with Trigilio, there you go with Father John Trigilio. I could boy, I could I could go for the frigidarium right about now. That's all I'm telling you. Oh, <laughs> yeah, best gelato on the face of planet Earth, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, how are you? I'm doing well. My abscess is getting better. Good. Glad Still to hear missing it. the tooth they yanked out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, you didn't need it. It's just a plaque. Yeah. Catch. Just a plaque catcher. I still remember that movie, The Marathon Man, where Lawrence oh. Olivier is torturing Dustin yeah. Hoffman. Yeah. <laughs> no good. No good. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall is producing the program, and uh, we are going to empty out this mailbag. We've also got a couple of listener comment line calls that we'll listen to a little bit later. But we'll kick things off with Gary, and he says, It seems to be a belief by some that Mary died at the end of her life. In view of that, does that mean her dead body was assumed into heaven and then reattached (laughs) to her soul upon arrival? Uh, we that don't choke, know. That would choke me up. <laughs> yes. We don't know because the church has never solemnly defined as dogma whether she physically died. Uh, Pope St. John Paul the Great uh, made his own personal opinion as a theologian and not official uh, papal teaching that he believed that she did die. But because of the Immaculate Conception and that special grace that she had that she remained sinless throughout her life, if she did die, then she was instantly then taken up because the idea was the the uh, effect of the assumption was that she would be preserved from the um, decay uh, of the body that is one of the consequences of original sin. Now, because she didn't have sin, uh, theologians propose that she did not have to die. Um, in the Eastern Church, both Eastern Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, they refer to Mary's passing as the Dormition, falling asleep. But in the ancient church, too, when the saints died, they called it falling asleep. So uh, you can make a good cause either way that she physically died or she did not die. But the point of faith is after her time here on earth came to an end, she was taken up body and soul into heaven. So she was taken up body and soul to heaven. So she wasn't reattached once her body got up there. So God did not take up a dead corpse and then reanimated, she was, you know, resurrected in, as, as uh, what hopefully happened to us at the end of time. Again, we're not taking your phone calls today. It's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Uh, Jerry writes in from Philadelphia, Dear Father John, I am distraught that I may be practicing sacrilegious, I may be a practicing sacrilegious Catholic. 
I'm oh. 77 years old, and 40 years ago I used contraceptives after two children. Um, uh, and an unfortunate miscarriage. Then my husband had a vasectomy. He died of cancer 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I did not know, or maybe was just stupid and ignorant, that all of this is mortal sin until your radio talk the other week. It was never my intent to be sacrilegious. What do I do yeah. now? There's not enough sackcloth and ashes for this, she says. <laughs> <laughs> well, first and foremost, you're not in in, um, in a dire situation because all you need to do is go to confession uh, to any priest with the faculties. He can absolve you, and you can then immediately start going to communion and not worry. Now, for it to be a truly sacrilegious communion with full um, culpability, you must have known at that moment you were receiving communion that you should not have. Since you already uh, admit that you weren't sure, you didn't know that that was a mortal sin, then, you know, objectively what you did was wrong, but subjectively you don't incur the, the culpability, the guilt. Uh, so if something were to happen to you, like the sisters told us when we were in Catholic grade school, that infamous truck would run you over as you crossed the street. Uh, you would not go right to hell for that because uh, you were operating under uh, ignorance at the time. With something like um, uh, vasectomy or uh, with um, tubal ligation, uh, a person is never morally bound to have another surgery. They are asked to maybe consider it. But if they say, no, we can't, or, you know, whatever reason, uh, they can still be absolved. So, because there are cases where uh, men had a vasectomy and the doctors say, well, we can't guarantee that if we undo it, it's going to work. Um, and it is a procedure that could have complications. So the main thing is to confess. So whether someone had a vasectomy or tubal ligation or they were using uh, the birth control pill or any any form of artificial contraception that's condemned by the church, all you need to do is to go to confession. Now, with those other methods, you have to at least have a firm purpose of amendment where you're going to at least make every effort to stop using those because those are not a one-time deal like the, the, the surgical procedures. So a couple, but there was from Rome a, a document, a vade mecum, that confessors could use to help married couples who were in the process of moving away from artificial contraception uh, and hopefully getting to the point where they no longer did it anymore. Uh, I've got an email here from Rosie, and she is referencing an email that was sent to her by her sister-in-law. And the sister-in-law's email says simply, is Pope Francis a socialist? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I've never heard him identify himself as one. I know there's some people who you know, have used that term. Uh, I know some people have said that he is not. Um, Well, we can certainly say that he was raised in a socialist country. He was raised in a socialist country, yes. And, uh, you know, he may may have, as some many people do, some socialist-like ideas. Those are his own personal opinions, which, you know, that's he's, he's entitled to. This is not part of his papal infallibility any more than who he supports in the World Soccer Tournament, okay? If he's going to root for Argentina and Pope Benedict's going to root for Germany, it's not a, it's not a conundrum. It's not a, uh, you know, uh, oxymoron. There's no danger there. Likewise, uh, papal infallibility merely means that he is prevented by the Holy Spirit from imposing on the faithful a teaching that is against faith and morals. His own personal philosophy, his own personal 
uh, politics. Uh, that's him as an individual, which he's totally entitled to have. Uh, it's only if he was to try to bind that on the faithful. And I've seen arguments on both sides of the fence and say, well, was he a socialist? Is he not? Um, that's something that, go to the source. Ask him, you know, if he doesn't identify as a socialist, then he's not one, but he may have some socialist-like ideas, just like we've had other people in the church. Some people were suspicious of uh, Dorothy Day. Um, the other people, they thought, oh, maybe they were a communist, or maybe they were a fascist. Uh, you know, th these are terms which, yes, they're worthy of looking into, but you have to also look at the person that they're talking about, and how do they identify themselves? And uh, Gary has a, a, a very simple question here. How do I expand my capacity to love God? Well, it's like a balloon. The more air you put in it, the bigger it gets. So the more grace we're, uh, we accept and cooperate with, the more grace we're able to receive. And uh, I used that analogy once, and a third grader says, but Father, what happens when the balloon bops? <laughs> <laughs> said, well, this is a balloon that doesn't pop, okay? It's it's an indestructible balloon. Uh, that's why you want to receive as much grace as possible, not just the bare minimum. You just don't want to be on life support. You want to have life to the full, and that includes the spiritual life. So you can receive more grace, okay, by accepting and cooperating with the grace that you're currently receiving. Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. We won't be taking your phone calls today. If you, if you would like to be part of a future mailbag program, uh, you can do so very easily by simply sending us an email, and that email address is openline at ewtn.com. That's openline at ewtn.com. Um, you can also text your question, and we can use it on a uh, mailbag program. Just text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. Once again, a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. If you'd like to uh, send a question in for a future program, simply send the email to openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. And put uh, Father John or Open Line Monday or something like that in the subject line. It is Open Line Monday. EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Uh, once again, we won't be taking your calls today, a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. If you'd like to help us spread the word about the good work we're doing here at EWTN, you can do so very easily by simply uh, becoming an EWTN media missionary. We'll give you all of the uh, training and materials that you need to help you use your social media presence to help tell people about the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Simply log on to EWTNmissionaries.com. That's EWTNmissionaries.com. 
Uh, again, if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag show, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. Philip writes in, Father John, and he says, If a Catholic gets married outside the church, are they severing their access to the other sacraments later on in life, like anointing of the sick, last rites, etc.? Uh, yes, I have to uh, be precise with this. Um, when someone is in danger of death, which is in Latin called in periculo mortis, in danger of death, they are able to receive the sacrament of the sick, sometimes called extra unction, um, even if they are invalidly married or irregular in the church for any reason. They obviously can make a, a confession if they're able to. They can be anointed if they're unconscious. They can even receive the uh, apostolic pardon. But all the other sacraments, especially Holy Communion, uh, confession that, they need to be uh, made regular. So if they're married outside the church and, and so they're in an invalid union, then they are not able to go to confession, not able to go um, Holy Communion. They're not able to receive any of the sacraments, but they can be anointed, uh, especially when it's in danger of death. Um, and that, at that, but you don't want to take that chance that you're going to be around or that the priest will be able to get you in time. Um, sometimes someone who's an invalid marriage, they got married outside of church, but they were neither one was previously married. So it may be easy to have that marriage we call convalidated or sometimes improperly called having their marriage blessed. But if either person was married before validly, then they need a decree of nullity or an annulment uh, before that they could have that marriage uh, convalidated. Uh, so yeah, you're cut off from most of the sacraments, but the, the anointing of the sick, you're always able to receive. And Kelly would like to know, how can our personal sacrifices add anything to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? They don't. <laughs> That's the simple answer. We're not adding to. What is happening is Jesus is inviting us to unite ours with his so in a sense, and I don't want to make this too quantitative, but in a sense, he left a little room on purpose, even though he could have done it completely. He left a little room so that we could contribute ours, not because he had to do it that way, but he wanted to. And how do we know this? Well, why else would he say, take up your cross and follow me? If, all, if he did it all, then there's no reason for us to carry our cross. And when St. Paul says, for what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ... What does he mean by that? What's lacking is not lacking because Jesus didn't do enough because he wasn't capable. He did exactly what he wanted to do, what he needed to do, but he also left an opportunity for us to unite our suffering with his. And there's a beautiful encyclical by St. John Paul the Great, Salvifici Dolores, on human suffering that I encourage you. That explains the whole uh, doctrine of redemptive suffering. Uh, again, a very special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. Uh, Jenny has a question for you, Father John. Mm. She wants to know, she says, My three daughters would like to know why men are the only ones who make all the rules in the church. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, what, what my mother and Father Brigenti's mother always would, would, would say. Yeah, the man, the husband, the, the father's the head of the family, but the wife is the neck that turns the head. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, ask any pastor if he's got uh, you know religious sisters, nuns in the parish. Uh, they they run the place more than the pastor does, uh, even though canonically he's the one in charge. Um, in terms of jurisdiction, canonical jurisdiction, 
the pastor, the person who has that ability to delegate, uh, you have to be in holy orders. So only deacons, uh, priests, and bishops can be pastors. Uh, if they assign uh, a woman, whether she's religious or lay, as an administrator, okay, they cannot be pastor because they don't have jurisdiction. That is reserved for those who have holy orders. And according to Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, that St. John Paul the Great issued uh, in the 90s, uh, only priests uh, are able to re- baptize males can be, uh, are the only ones available to be priests. That doesn't mean that women are not worthy. Uh, I wasn't worthy to be a priest, but because Jesus was a man, and his manhood is part of his priesthood, and his spouse is Holy Mother to Church, uh, we're not into same-sex union, so uh, the priest who represents Christ in persona Christi, he has to be a man like Jesus was, because his bride is Holy Mother, the Church, just like the sisters, uh, when they make their vows, you know, they typically would wear a wedding ring or even wear a, a wedding gown on the day of their profession because they're becoming a bride of Christ. So yeah, that, that's, but that doesn't mean that as a priest, I am uh, deaf or uh, I ignore the advice and counsel of the women of the parish because there, there are more women who work in the parish and participate uh, than the men. I mean, they're on the uh, different councils, uh, they're in the office, uh, they do a lot of the work. Uh, they're the backbone of the, of, the, of the parish. So any pastor would be negligent and stupid uh, if he didn't take the advice he is offered by these women. Dan in Arkansas asks, At the end of the collect prayer at Mass, I usually hear, Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit. However, some parishes say, Who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit. Which of these is correct according to the original Latin? Well, it all depends because there's some some of those prayers end sooner than the others, so you have to each one is is uh, unique and different. So it's not a standard like there was in the um, extraordinary form. Okay, there was just one way that that the the, the prayer ended uh, in the ordinary form or the Novus Ordo, the Vatican II Mass, Pope Paul VI Mass, however you want to call it. They have a variety of ways in which they end. Uh, the collect, uh, the the, um, the offertory prayer, the closing prayer. So each one is different. So you can't just say it all has to end the same way. They they don't. That's just to give a little variety. And so you, you have, it's dependent on the text of that particular day. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We've had some calls come in for Father John on our listener comment line after hours. Let's take a listen to one of those now. Yes, thank you, Father DiGiulio. My name is Lisa, and I'm listening from Owensboro, Kentucky. And I have a question about alcoholism. I was wondering if a person that you know is an alcoholic, will they be able to make it to heaven? And also, would they, uh, can they receive Holy Communion? Thank you, and God bless you. That, that's a very good question. And I have to say, um, you know, I know a seminarian who is a recovering alcoholic, and he's been sober for many years. And I think he's going to become a fantastic, wonderful priest. I know some priests who are battling alcoholism. Some are very good friends of mine. Um, you can still get to heaven. You can, you know, uh, be a priest. But you have to also want to be sober. Uh, just like a, a lay person, all right, uh, who's struggling with alcoholism, 
yeah, it's a disease, but there's also a component where you want you have to at least want to be better. You have to at least try. All right, uh, work towards sobriety. You may not have a perfect track record, but you at least make the effort. You can't just throw your hands up and say, "Well, I'm an alcoholic, and you know, take me or leave me." The church doesn't approve of that any more than uh, a drug addict. Or we have people who are gamblers. They're addicted gamblers. We have people who are now addicted to Netflix and watching uh, videos and texting and that. So there's all a variety of, of addic- addictive behavior out there. And as St. Thomas Aquinas would explain in the Summa Theologica, the more we do things that are bad habits that become addictive, our culpability is reduced, but it's never eliminated. It's still a human act, uh, which means that... Uh, you know, there's there's some culpability involved. So yes, it is possible. I think it's um, Matt Talbot is considered or up for possible. Um, you know, if he gets canonized to be the um, uh, patron saint for uh, recovering alcoholics. But uh, yes, it is possible. But it's not like you know, no holds barred. That you know, you can still go and um, indulge yourself. You have to at least make that effort. And Andrew would like to know, can you explain blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I always feel that I've committed this sin. Yeah, blasphemy in and of itself is speaking uh, uh, irreverently of God and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Many theologians consider it to be that's what the sin against the Holy Spirit is. It's the worst type, type of blasphemy. And we see an example of it in the Gospel when Jesus performs a miracle and he's accused of being in league with Beelzebub, the prince of, of demons or the devil. Because here God is doing a miraculous event that only God could do. He chases out uh, demons, uh, and only God would be able to do that. And they say, oh, well, you're not doing it because you're the son of God. You're doing because you're in league with the devil. So it's looking at a divine act, a divine act done by God, and perverting it and saying, well, God didn't do it. It was the devil. And so that's the sin of the Holy Spirit. When you see something good and you now portray it as something evil um, and your motivation is certainly not good either. It's not because, you know, you're, you're afraid of people being duped, but that you're so warped and perverted in your, in your, in your sense of right and wrong that when you see something good, you don't want to acknowledge it. Uh, your pride wants you like the, the sin of Lucifer. You want to say, no, I will decide. And so I'm saying that this is not a, an act of God, it's an act of the evil one. So that's the, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and it's a very uh, nasty sin. And just a couple minutes left here uh, in this segment, Henrietta wants to know, she says, my young adult sons have talked about their friends having vasectomies. How can I talk to them about this and tell them not to make such a big decision so young, especially since it's against church teaching? Yes, uh, that's an important conversation to have um, because, first of all, it's not always reversible. Uh, so they're taking a chance that they will never, you know, change their mind. They might not get into a, a situation where they really want to have children. Now it's too late. But also, it's wrong to do to begin with. Uh, it's immoral because you're using artificial means. You're saying that the sex act, the conjugal act between husband and wife, uh, it does not need to be open to children. That's absolutely essential. When you read Monte Vitae, uh, Pope Paul VI made it very clear uh, that every uh, conjugal act, act of intimacy between husband and wife, must be open to uh, the possibility of life, but also uh, the union of the two of the spouses there. 
So it's procreation, but also uh, unity, unitive, love and life. And so when you isolate either one of them, uh, then you're, you're, you're making it a sinful act. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. But if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag show, you can send us an email. The address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Matt writes in, what does Catholicism offer that other religions do not? I don't belong or agree with any particular faith and wonder why I should belong to the Catholic Church. Okay, well, I hear that very often, and... The explanation I like to give is not that we're saying we're right and they're wrong. What we should say, and what I do say, is, especially people who are not of the Catholic faith, is that we have the fullness of truth and the fullness of grace. The other Christian religions, they have some of it. They have partial truth and partial grace because if there's seven sacraments, we have all seven. If they only have two sacraments, well, that's some grace, but it's not the fullness of grace. We've got the fullness of truth because we have the full revelation sacred scripture and sacred tradition, whereas in the Protestant tradition, it's only sacred scripture. And even there, we have the full sacred scripture because we have all the books of the Old Testament. Okay, we have all 46 as opposed to only 39. So just on that glance alone to see, okay, you've got the fullness of truth, all revelation. Uh, We have the fullness of grace, all the seven sacraments. And we've got that apostolic uh, succession. We have the continuity with the 12 apostles, but also with Peter. Uh, Jesus said, you are Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. The word church is used in Matthew's gospel, ecclesia in Greek, and Jesus owned that word and said, I will build my church. And where is he going to build it? On Peter. And, and who is the successor of St. Peter? The Pope, the Bishop of Rome, the head of the Catholic Church. So those things right there tell us that this is the direct line. Uh, The other ones are connected to us, uh, sometimes, you know, very tenuously, but we're the fullness as as was given in the very beginning. Uh, Leo has a short one-sentence question that's got a lot packed into it, and he says, after a period of doubt, what can I do to earn back God's grace? Well, you don't earn God's grace, uh, that was Pelagius's idea that you could earn grace or get brownie points or sort of convince God you're worthy. Uh, and then it's, it's, uh, it's like, you know, if you go to work and you do your job, then you get paid. Well, that you earned it. That's your earnings. That's what the IRS says. You know, what was your earnings for the year? Grace is a gift, okay? Uh, grace comes from the, from the word for gift, gratia. And grace is freely given. It's not what we earn, but we have to freely accept it. So God offers us grace. We have to freely accept it and then cooperate with it. He doesn't force it upon us. He doesn't shove it down our throat. And we don't work our way towards it. But once we have grace, we have to put it to use. So as St. James says, you know, we have to have both faith and works. It's not either or. It's both and, as, as Pope Emeritus Benedict would often say. 
Tina writes in, regarding order in church meetings as discussed in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, is there liberty within the Mass for spiritual gifts? The way the Mass is now, uh, no. Um, and likewise, in the early church, uh, the Mass was a little bit different. I mean, you still had the, the essential part. You had the, um, the breaking of the bread, which was the first way they referred to the Mass, later called the Eucharist, and then uh, the Holy Mass, where uh, wheat bread and grape wine were consecrated by the priests. We have the reading of sacred scripture. But there was also a part when you read uh, St. Paul's epistle where, like in Corinth, they were getting a little carried away because they were also um, having a dinner where they were feeding the, the, the poor, but then it got to be, it deteriorated to the rich people were bringing food for themselves and ignoring the people who needed help. Um, and then you got to the point where people were bringing uh, food and clothes to give to the poor, and the apostles were uh, spending too much time taking care of that very practical concern, so then they established the order of deacons. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that were present in the early church were there for a specific purpose to confirm to people that this was from God and this was uh, the intent of Christ. Uh, later that was no longer needed, and that's why it's not considered an essential part of the sacred liturgy. Let's take a listen to another of our listener comment line calls. When I was wondering, babies and all people that are non-Catholic, non-Christians, that don't get baptized through no fault of their own and don't know the knowledge of Christianity, do they have no way of being saved or just... I know they have a way to be saved, but do they actually go to limbo? Okay, well, um, interesting enough, in the new catechism of the Catholic Church that was promulgated in 1992, that is now the current catechism of the Universal Church, the word limbo does not appear at all. Uh, it did appear uh, in the Summa Theologica, but that was not uh, a doctrinal edict of the church that was saint thomas aquinas's uh, theology uh, most of us uh, at least of my age group we heard it when we read the baltimore catechism and that was a teaching of the church but it was never a dogma it was a theological conclusion to explain how you reconcile the necessity of baptism with the fact that some people die who as this caller mentions through no fault of their own was not baptized. They did not reject Christ. They did not reject the church. They did not reject baptism. Uh, they just died. And, you know, like uh, many cases, infants uh, or those who died through um, miscarriage or stillbirth, you know, why would God keep them out of heaven? It wasn't their fault. So to preserve that, they came up with this idea of limbo, a place of natural happiness. But even in St. Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica, he, he posits that besides the baptism of water and the baptism of blood, where someone dies for the faith before they're baptized with water, there's a baptism of desire, where a person wanted to be baptized but died before that. And we have the possibility, because at the Second Vatican Council, we have this idea that God wishes everyone to be saved, but uh, he gives grace to those who cooperate with it, St. Augustine referred to the idea that everyone gets sufficient grace, it becomes efficacious for those who cooperate with it. So there could be a way in which when a uh, baby dies, God could certainly infuse in their intellect a requisite amount of knowledge so that he then could choose 
and based on their choice, then, you know, be in heaven or um, some other condition. So it is possible. Uh, we leave it in the mercy, merciful hands of God. But I typically believe, and this is my personal opinion, it's not church uh, dogma or doctrine, that uh, these people who die in good faith through no fault of their own, because that's in the catechism, through no fault of their own, uh, do have the potential uh, to be saved. Uh, Dan writes in, what are the differences between lay religious groups, such as the Knights of Columbus and Knights of Malta, and what do they contribute to the Church? Well, the, the Knights of Malta are an actual knighthood that's recognized by the Church, and one must be uh, recommended and approved by their local bishop. Uh, in, in medieval times, they were actual uh, order of chivalry where... You know, these men uh, took promises and vows, and they were religious, but also they were knights, and not necessarily knights at a round table, but um, like the Knights of Malta protected the the holy the shrines in the Holy Land, and the Knights uh, of the Holy Sepulchre, likewise. The Knights of Columbus are a social group that are connected to the church, but it's not uh, a, a, a particularly knighthood in terms of, um, like, the Knights of Malta, or like um, Father Briganti and I, we recently were inducted into the Constantinian Order of St. George. Uh, these are things which are either dynastic or they're um, knight knights that are recognized by the Holy See. Knights of Columbus are more like a social uh, group, obviously very religious, but uh, it's not the same as those other orders, and you do not need the bishop's approval but you do need to be a practicing Catholic uh, to become a member of the Knights of Columbus. Uh, again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. No phone calls today, please. Uh, Claire writes in, is there a way to avoid distractions while praying? Does the prayer still count? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> it's easy to get distracted. I mean, you're in the chapel or uh, you're in the church and... There's all kinds of noise going on. It could be uh, a baby crying. It could be your own stomach gurgling. They could be workers working on the roof. We we have here at the seminary, they're drilling a hole for a water well, and we hear it right in the middle of, of, of prayer or in the middle of Mass. There's so many things that can distract us because as human beings, all five senses are usually operational, and any one or more than one could be uh, absorbed enough that it can be distracted Distraction is not a sin, it's a condition, and I need to, to try to eliminate it as much as possible, but sometimes I have no, no control, so I do the best that I can. You're in the hospital, you're in the nursing home, uh, you're at home in, with hospice. There are a lot of things to distract you, especially the aches and pains of your own body. It's not your fault. You do the best that you can, and the Lord knows that. And then uh, I've got two questions here that, that are related, and, and, and one answer will, will knock them both out here. Rebecca says, is penance enough to do away with temporal punishment, or is it something that stays with us and we need to continue to pray and fast? And piggyback that with Henry's question, can you help me understand the purpose of purgatory? Why not go directly to heaven? Well, you can go directly to heaven if you live a very virtuous and holy life. Purgatory is not uh, absolutely necessary for everyone, but a lot of us need it because the word purgatory means to cleanse, purgatus, 
And a lot of us not only need it, we want it. It's like if you get invited to the governor's house, to the White House, to somebody that, you know, of high prestige, you want to look good, you want to be cleaned up, so you get your hair cut, you wash your face, you put on clean clothes before you go to their house. And that's to show honor and respect to the host for inviting you. Well, to, for us to go to heaven, we want to be spotless, we want to be totally clean, and that temporal punishment due to sin, yes, it's punishment, but it's also uh, out of justice that we need to make amends. And so if we don't do it here on earth, we do it in the next life. So uh, when you go to confession, you do your penance, the temporal punishment due to sin is still there. That's why having indulgences are, are helpful. But if you don't do it in this life, you'll do it in the next. And purgatory is not a, a hell with, with a parole. It's more like a suburb of heaven that you're waiting, preparing to cross that, those, that, that doorway into everlasting joy. Uh, Mandy says, my dad was a Marine and is entitled to a full body burial at sea. What is the yes. church's view of this type of burial? That is allowed. Uh, when you read the the um, the order of, of Christian burial and funerals, uh, the two ways to be buried that the church uh, acknowledges and respects, burial at sea or burial at land, and the body must be intact. What we do not approve of is when someone gets cremated and then they scatter the ashes. You can be cremated, but you have to be buried intact either at sea or in in the earth or as a body you could be buried at sea uh, or in the in the ground but the body must be kept intact the the coffin could be made of any material whatsoever uh, or when they bury you at sea i don't even think they put you in a coffin they put you in a special uh, casing and that but as long as the body is treat, treated with respect because that's how we affirm our belief in the resurrection uh, John writes in, if Jewish marriages are not valid until consummated, how do we explain Mary's marriage to Joseph in this context? Okay, well, it's like within, in the Catholic Church, if a couple's married and they do not um, consummate it, they're still married in the eyes of the Church. It's a marriage, it's, uh, when it's ratum and non consummatum, that means if the couple break up and separate, uh, they're able to get married because that rotum et non consummatum situation where they were uh, married uh, validly but they never consummated, that's a bond that can be um, dissolved. Once it's been consummated, then it's unto death. Mary was legally, morally, spiritually married to Joseph, but it was never a consummated marriage. So it was valid. Okay, it may not, uh, even in, Ju in Mosaic law, uh, they were allowed to make those special promises of, um, you know, we sometimes call it a brother-sister or a, a Josephite uh, a marriage. But uh, in terms of, of our faith, the Christian faith, they were certainly married, but it was a non-consummated, valid uh, union. And I think we have one more listener comment line call. Let's take a listen. My question is that if we all came from two human beings, if the whole world... That would be a massive incest that would, that's still going on today. So if that is re the reality, it's incest, and uh, why are we all different races? We should all be the same race. It just doesn't make sense to me. I'm Catholic, but uh, that's just my question. Uh, and why couldn't uh, God see that uh, Lucifer was going to turn on him? I mean, he's all-knowing and all-seeing. Why didn't he see that coming? I'm not saying that to be sarcastic. Thank you. 
No, that's very logical, both both his questions. Uh, I'll do the easier one first. Uh, yes, God knew that Lucifer was going to go bad, and he knew Adam and Eve were going to disobey him. Uh, but his foreknowledge does not uh, coerce or uh, mandate what he's going to do. Um, you know, it's almost like a parent knows their kid's not going to be uh, Albert Einstein. Well, they still send him to school and hope that he might, you know, hopefully go to college someday or pick up a trade. Um, your foreknowledge does not force you to do anything. So God knowing that Lucifer was going to rebel, <clears throat> it was a free act of Lucifer and the third of the angels who went against him. And the Lord respected that gift of free will. And it was better to create than not create. Likewise with Adam and Eve, you know, they were created in the state of innocence and the state of grace, and then they freely rejected that. Now, the fact that we believe in monogenism, that the whole human race comes from one set of parents, it's not incest when the separation becomes greater and greater. So, for instance, I have a cousin uh, that lives in uh, Flemington, New Jersey, <clears throat> my cousin Ginny. Uh, we're fourth cousins, which means we have the same great-great-grandfather. Um, <clears throat> we're related, but we're not as closely related as I would to my sister had she survived, or that I'm related like to my brother. Uh, it's called consanguinity, how you're related to people. And so even in the legal civil law and in canon law, uh, you can marry a relative that's not too closely related. So you can't marry your sibling, you can't marry your first cousin, but as you go down the line, second, third, fourth, fifth cousins, or in that regard, you're allowed to marry them. It's not considered incestuous. Uh, this has been going on for centuries uh, in dynastic uh, monarchies. What got them into trouble is when they married too close in the line. You know, they were marrying siblings and first cousins. And that's when uh, the gene pool uh, really got stretched. But uh, in terms of how the whole human race comes from one set of parents, as the scientists who in the 1980s discovered the fact, scientific fact, that the whole human race can be traced through mitochondrial DNA of one woman. So the science is backing up, and now they've found some other evidence that the human race can also be traced uh, through, um, I forget which actual process it was, to one man as well. So the fact that we're not separate groups, that means we're one family of mankind. Now, why are there different races? Well, if there's one human race, all right? So we are human, and the fact that some of us look different, I mean, Italians look different than Polish, um, African people look different than European, but we're still human beings. And so I don't, that, that, that's why I, I get irritated when I see that question on forms, what race are you? I'm a human race. That's what, that's what we really are. These other designations are contrived. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Not taking your phone calls today. Be sure to check out Take Two with Jerry and Debbie tomorrow at noon Eastern time right here on EWTN Radio. George would like to know, how do I explain to my non-denominational girlfriend how the rosary is beneficial to your spiritual life? Okay, well, first I would show her where the Hail Mary, especially the first half of it, comes directly from the Gospel of St. Luke. Uh, the angel appears to Mary, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And then uh, later on in that same chapter, when Mary goes visit her cousin Elizabeth, uh, blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. That's right from sacred scripture. So that means the first half of the Hail Mary comes from 
the Holy Spirit, and it was recorded by St. Luke, and the words were the words of Gabriel and the words of St. Elizabeth. And so if anyone has any problems with that prayer, they've got to take it up with the Holy Spirit, with St. Luke, St. Gabriel, and St. And, and Elizabeth. So the, the, the Hail Mary, the Rosary, these, this is, and it, it, the Rosary incorporates the, um, the Lord's Prayer as well. After every decade, we say the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, in addition to the Hail Mary. So the Hail Mary is not uh, a prayer that is improper for Christians to pray. All right, we're asking Mary for intercession. We're not going to her as a mediator. Jesus is the mediator, but we're going to her as an intercessor, one of many, but she is the intercessor par excellence because she's the mother of Jesus. And uh, Frank, it's right to the point here. He says, what constitutes a near occasion of sin? Okay, a near occasion of sin is a person, place, or thing that tempts or lures us into sin. All right, and the thing may not necessarily be evil intrinsically of itself. But a near occasion of sin could be a friend who always, when we hang out with that person, leads us to get drunk, all right, or to skip work or to be bad. So a person or a place, you know, if every time you go to the bar you get drunk, then that is an occasion of sin. If this one particular person you always hang out with uh, leads you to do bad things, uh, that's an occasion of sin. Uh, or a thing, all right, some people... You know, they commit the sin of gluttony because every time they go to uh, a, a particular restaurant or when it's all-you-can-eat buffet, they're going to pig out. Well, that, that's an occasion of sin. The restaurant isn't evil, all right, but that particular context, so person, place, or thing, which can lure us, tempt us into sin, is what we call an occasion of sin. And... Um... Linda says, how, do, how does the Church reconcile the teaching of in persona Christi with the belief that there is only one Lord Jesus Christ? Okay, well, uh, this is kept intact because it's only one person. So Jesus is one person, he's the second person of the Holy Trinity, and all priests and bishops who are ordained are ordained to act in persona Christi. We act in the person of Christ. We don't act as separate Christ, okay? So when, I, and when I'm at Mass and I take the bread and the wine, I say, this is my body, this is my blood. But when you come to communion, you're not receiving Father Tregilio's body and blood, thank God. You're receiving the body and blood of Christ. When I'm in the confessional and I say, I absolve you, or when I, at a baptism, and I say, I baptize you, I'm saying that as Christ himself. So there's one person of Jesus and he is using me, my body, my voice, but he's the one celebrating the sacrament, all right? I'm just there acting in persona Christi as an altar Christus, as another Christ. There's only one Jesus, so there's not like a duplication of, of, of our Lord. We're acting in his name. In the same way that St. Paul uses this analogy as an ambassador, an ambassador speaks on behalf of the head of state who sends them, they're not there to do their own bidding. They're to represent the person who sends them. And um, Terry wants to know what the church's stance on in vitro fertilization is. It's condemned. Because just like artificial contraception is condemned, uh, in vitro fertilization is condemned. So artificial conception, artificial um, contraception are both condemned because it's separating love and life, procreation and unity. Both are constitutive elements of conjugal love between husband and wife. If you do either one, 
because in, in vitro fertilization is even more pernicious because most times they will uh, fertilize a number of eggs and each fertilized egg is an embryo, it's a human being, and they only take the ones they like that they consider viable and the other ones they either freeze or destroy, which in essence is, is abortion, it's a murdering them. And uh, Franklin points out that St. Catherine of Siena's head and thumb are in Siena. The rest of her body is in Rome. How <laughs> yes. is it permissible to separate her body? <laughs> it's an Italian thing. <laughs> um, no, because the person's not alive anymore, and so their parts, and the, the church restricts this only to canonized saints. And again, it's like when, if the saint had some particular attachment to more than one place. St. Thomas Aquinas uh, and uh, other saints, all right, parts of them are in one place, parts are in another. Um, I always thought that was one way they could have solved the Fulton J. Sheen <laughs> controversy is leave his heart in New York and send the rest of them to Peoria. Uh, it's not a ghoulish thing because at the resurrection, God's going to be able to put them back together. Um, they're not alive, and it's there for, um, you know, the dulia, the, the honor and veneration. Uh, it's not a macabre thing that some people say, oh, well, isn't that creepy? you got one part of him here, one part of there. Well, again, it's not like having grandma urn on the mantelpiece of, of your living room. That's not respectful. But if a church has, you know, the hand of, of, of St. Blaise and, you know, the foot of uh, St. Dennis or whatever, uh, that that's an object of devotion. It's not one of worship. William wants to know, if are Catholics saved through faith or grace? We're saved yes. through we're saved through both of them, yes. And <laughs> faith comes by grace. Well, Father Trujillo, thanks so much for being so gracious with your time, doing a little double duty this week so that you can blow us off next week. So I can you, pray for me at that meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Would you leave us with a blessing? Sure. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Trujillo, our producer Michael McCall. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for tuning in to this very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade Menezes on Open Line Tuesday. Until then, God bless.